0: 18. The Utilitarian Case for Voluntaryism. Danny Duchamp. Danny Duchamp creates videos and essays on liberty, economics, and philosophy from a consequentialist libertarian perspective. No position but voluntarism is defensible from a utilitarian perspective. Even if I convince you of this, you might respond that you are not a utilitarian, so this does not convince you of voluntarism. However, you needn't be a utilitarian to be persuaded by utilitarian arguments. Utilitarianism is the proposition that you should do whatever maximizes utility or the fulfillment of human values. You may not think that maximally fulfilling human values is always the right thing to do, but you probably do care about human values at least a little, so it's still worth taking utilitarian analysis into account. Or perhaps you were a utilitarian. That works too. Voluntarism is the proposition that interactions in which both parties consent, trade, games, etc., are universally preferable to interactions in which one party coerces the other, violence, theft, etc. I could plausibly establish the utilitarian justification for voluntarism simply by referring to the billions lifted out of poverty through voluntary trade over the past couple of centuries. Since 1820, GDP per capita worldwide has increased 15-fold, the percentage of people living in extreme poverty. Less than $1.90 per day, inflation-adjusted, has fallen from over 90% to under 10%, too and the average person has access to a variety of food, entertainment, and technology that even kings under previous economic systems couldn't dream of. The utilitarian benefits of voluntary trade are so gargantuan that no honest utilitarian could entertain any alternative. However, this argument doesn't make clear why we can attribute the triumphs of capitalism to voluntaryism. More importantly, it misses the deeper philosophical connection between voluntaryism and utilitarianism. To resolve those issues, let us begin from the perspective of a utilitarian. The problem with utilitarian analysis is that some values are mutually exclusive. If I eat an apple, you can't eat it too. My value for apple eating is fulfilled, and yours is not. We therefore must determine who values it more. Sometimes, this may be intuitively obvious. We probably agree that if I am dying of hunger while you aren't even sure if you'd finish the apple, then I value it more than you. In other situations, it isn't so obvious. If neither of us is starving and both of us like apples, then who values it more? It's hard to say. Why is it so obvious in the extreme case? Perhaps because we know I would be willing to sacrifice more. If the apple were on a high branch, I would be more willing to climb up to get it. If the apple were for sale, I would be willing to pay more. This understanding, drawn from the extreme case, gives us a way of estimating who values something more when it isn't so obvious. Namely, if I would be willing to pay more for something, in effort, money, or anything else, then I value it more. Fortunately, this system is largely self-arranging. If one of us currently possesses the apple, and the other values it more, the latter can buy it from the former. Not only does this mean the buyer is better off, the seller must be, too. If the buyer did not value the apple more than the money, he would not have bought. If the seller did not value the money more than the apple, he would not have sold. It is only largely self-arranging because while people are generally incentivized to act in accordance with it, there is an exception, coercion. I might not want to buy the apple from you if I can simply take it by force. My values are still fulfilled. I must have valued the apple more than the effort of taking it from you, but yours are not. You must have valued the apple more than the nothing you got in return, or you would have just given it to me. We are back at the problem of determining whose values are more important. In fact, it's worse than that. If I try to take something from you, you will resist imposing costs on both of us in the form of property damage and bodily harm. In addition to the cost of security you may incur to prevent future acts of coercion. It's not just that voluntary acts tend to raise total utility and coercive acts have no such tendency. Coercive acts actually tend to decrease total utility. Thus, voluntaryism gives us a method of determining who gets what in a way that maximizes total utility. If someone appropriates some unowned piece of property from nature, leave him be. He has just increased his utility. If he trades that property with someone else, leave them be. They have both just increased their utility. If, however, he steals or damages the property of someone else, stop him. He has just reduced total utility. If we apply these principles of private ownership and voluntary exchange consistently, we must apply them to capital goods, which are goods used to produce other goods tools, machines, companies, etc. If these goods could be seized at any moment, then you would have little reason to produce them. Conversely, if you can reliably maintain ownership of capital goods, you have a profit incentive to produce them and sell their output to the world. This is how capitalism, the private ownership of capital goods, achieved the unprecedented living standards we discussed at the beginning. This isn't to say that the world we live in now operates entirely on a voluntary basis. Theft, fraud, murder, and assault still happen regularly. Taxation, war, victimless crime laws, and an endless list of other government actions all violate people's consent every day. Our reasoning tells us that each of these actions should be expected to reduce the total fulfillment of human values. At least to the extent that you care about human values, you should attempt to prevent these coercive actions. In other words, at least to the extent that you are a utilitarian, you should be a voluntarist.